this morning who are uh, members of the armed services. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, right here. There's somebody. Anybody else? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. There's somebody over here as well. Yeah. Uh, We're very thankful for your service. And obviously, too, we're very thankful and want to remember those that have given their life for uh, service to this country. Uh, Something else that is um, happening is uh, I'm going to be going on sabbatical. We've been mentioning this for uh, some time now. And (laughs) I don't understand why this happens, but there are weird rumors that get circulated about uh, me uh, even in the past when I've gone on vacation, let alone on a three-month sabbatical, one of the rumors is there's something wrong with me. That's pretty true, but, but I mean in terms of physical health and that we're taking time off, you know, for, for me to heal or something. It's not true. That's a completely false. Another one is that I'm about to retire, and again, many of you would love that, but that's not on, uh, not about to retire. I figure we might as well just spill the beans on this because you're going to keep digging until you find out, but here's the deal. It's a little awkward, um, but Holly and I are going to have a child, and uh, (laughs) what? (laughs) That's Holly laughing the loudest down here. (laughs) Uh, No, that's that's not the case. Uh, There's really nothing uh, nothing going on except that uh, I'm going to take a sabbatical, and um, I'll be gone for June and. July and and August, and this is a time for some members of our staff to really have an opportunity to speak into the life of the congregation. I hope you'll make it a priority to be here for that. Uh, We'll also have a a professor from Denver Seminary, uh, Scott Winning, who'll be here with us as well, and he's the homiletics professor, the preaching professor at Denver Seminary, and very gifted guy, and just a a very godly man, and we're delighted that he too will be able to speak into the life of our congregation this summer. And then I would covet your prayers, Holly and I would, for uh, this time, uh, part of which will be spent away and, and part of which will be focused on ministry here at Deer Creek Church, only uh, looking at ministry plan for the years to come. So uh, that's what's going on. And uh, would some of you pray for me when, when we're gone, for Holly and I, some of you? I'm too, I know better than to ask, would all of you pray? But would some of you pray? Yeah, okay, okay, some of you will pray. That's good. That's very good. Um, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll, we'll dive into our subject this morning. Father, we, uh, we thank you uh, that when we gather in a place like this, not only do we enjoy the freedoms of this country in which we live, but we, we enjoy the presence of you. You engage us, you speak to us, you challenge us and, and, uh, We give thanks that that's part of the experience of following Jesus. We really can hear from you, God. Help us to respond the way you would want us to respond. Also, Father, we we thank you for the time of study that we have, and we would ask that you would would speak to us now, and uh, may we hear from you and respond to you and be different because of that. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, today we're going to talk some more about work. And, uh, you know, last Monday, uh, last Sunday, we talked about getting up on Monday and saying, thank God it's Monday. So last Monday, I got out of bed with a lot of anticipation. I went and got a a cup of coffee, and I thanked God it was Monday, and I surrendered my day to the Lord. Lord, whatever you want for me today, grace, may your will be done. And I sat down in my office. I 
turned on my computer, and I had a very manageable number of emails, each of which was either a message of great encouragement uh, or a piece of important information that I badly needed or an offer of something that was both financially wise and deeply life-enhancing. Uh, thanks to one of them, I've been able to help a Nigerian prince get released from jail and retrieve his family fortune, and I'll be getting a generous part of that fortune, and I'm going to get to tie that to the church. And then also two staff members were having a conflict, and I was able to help resolve that very, very quickly, and they immediately offered to work for free for the entire week out of just gratitude for the help. And then it was time to write a sermon, and so I opened a file, I put my hands on the keyboard, and my fingers just began to effortlessly produce the most helpful, the most biblically informed, inspirational, the most eloquent sermon I have ever written in my entire life. I wish it was this sermon, but it's not. It's a different sermon. And then my wife called and said, honey, you have been so helpful around the house lately, fixing the toilet, cleaning the oven, installing a ceiling light, uh, taking care of the lawn, dusting, fixing meals, doing dishes. You need a break. What can I do just to show my appreciation to you and for all that you do? Anybody here ever had a day like that? <laughs> of course you haven't. Are you kidding? Nobody ever has a day like that. I mean, work is good, but it's not that good. Uh, why? Well, because work has been invaded by something called sin. It has been damaged by what Christians refer to as the fall, sin coming into the world. And so now we have to deal with alienation. We have to deal with thorns and thistles. We have to deal with making things happen by the sweat of our brow. Last week, we talked about the Ten Commandments of work. And how God wants us to lead our work lives and make them a part of our doing life with God so that they are intertwined. They are the same thing. This week we're talking about the seven deadly sins of work. Things that devastate us in the marketplace and in our personal lives. Things we need to avoid. Things we need to change. So are you with me? The seven deadly sins of work. Here we go. The first one is the sin of sloth or laziness. You know, this is the sin nobody ever admits to in our day. Nobody. What, what's your greatest weakness as an employee? Well, I work too much. You know, that's, that's what we say. Nobody ever says, well, you know, I'm pretty lazy. Uh, that's my problem. But trust me, this actually is a big problem in the workplace. Proverbs says that a slugger does not plow in, uh, does not plow in season. So at harvest time, he looks, but he finds nothing hasn't done the due diligence in order to have a crop. There was an article by the Gallup organization in USA Today, and they found that the majority of workers in the United States really don't like their jobs, the majority of workers. Uh, in fact, a large majority of them have disengaged, they found out. They have become what uh, is called a road warrior. Uh, in a military term, that means retired but on active duty. That's what they've become. A Gallup guy named David Beck says that they worked with 10,000 employees from the Internal Revenue Service. And Beck said that a very common complaint from folks working at the IRS, they say this kind of thing. They say, I hate my job, but I've only got 20 years left, you know, so I'll keep on, keeping on, right? Uh, that is not a thank God it's Monday attitude. That's quite the opposite. Thank God I only have 20 years left. Goodness gracious, that is a long time. Think of the poor work they do. 
Think of the taxpayers that they serve half-heartedly or the I-don't-care attitude that exists there that they exhibit. It's hard to imagine that happening at the IRS. I know that it is, but apparently it does. In Genesis, there's a guy named Abraham. Most of you are familiar with his story. And he sends at one point a servant of his out to look for a wife for his son Isaac. That's the way they did it back then. Uh, the servant goes on this journey and arrives in the place where he wants to find a wife for Isaac. And he has a caravan with him of, of ten camels uh, laden with all kinds of gifts and things that he's going to present to this woman that he can find for, uh, to be the wife of Isaac. And this servant comes to a well, and he's quite thirsty. And, of course, there are no restaurants uh, in, in those days. Uh, and he has prayed about this with his God. He's been having conversations with his God. And he wants God to bring a woman to him who has a real servant's heart, a willingness to work hard. And so he has a, a plan in mind for what that would look like. And so he sees this woman standing at the well. Her name is Rebecca. And so he asks her, please may I have a, a drink of water from your jar. She's been pulling up water from the well and, uh, and filling a, a jar that she's going to take back to the place where she lives. And Rebecca says, sure, have a drink, and I'll water your camels too while you drink. Now, we tend to, when we read that, kind of read right by it, but uh, this is actually a big deal. Rebecca is saying, you know, I'll do what you asked me to do, and then some. That's what she's saying, and then some. And that's actually the phrase there, and then some. Here's the kicker. Anybody here know how much water a camel can drink? Uh, they say about 30 gallons, 30 gallons of water. Do the math. 10 camels times 30 gallons, 300 gallons. That's a lot of water to haul up from, <coughs> excuse me, a well. Uh, this is a woman with strong biceps and a strong work ethic, both combined. And notice, here, here's the thing I want you to notice. Because of her response, because uh, the servant had prayed to find a woman who would offer to do such a gracious thing, because Rebecca has an and-then-some kind of attitude, her whole life is about to change. She'll meet the man who's going to become her husband because of this and-then-some kind of attitude. She will become what is called a matriarch of Israel, one of the mothers of Israel. To this day, thousands of years later, people are actually blessed in the name of Rebekah, just because of who she was, because of who she came. But she didn't know that any of that was on the line when she made this and-then-some kind of offer. She was just being faithful. She was being a servant. She was being a worker. Uh, she was just being who she should be, frankly. Now, sometimes, let's be honest, if, you know, if I know uh, I'm in line for a promotion, if I know my boss is watching, uh, if I know that I'm going to get credit for something that's about to be done that I can do, if I know it's getting captured on video, well, then I'll do my job and then some. But, friends, in the kingdom, and we discussed this at quite a great length last, last Sunday, since we work for who? Jesus, we are to be and then some kinds of people. That ought to characterize us. Jesus always went above and beyond. Jesus is an and then some kind of God. And so the first deadly sin is that I just do the bare minimum. I do whatever I have to do to get by. I'm a road warrior, retired, but on active duty. And I would submit to you that is no way to live. That is no way to work. 
That is no way to see up there come down here into your life. That is no way to experience purpose and pleasure and joy in the work that you do. That does not honor God. Are you with me so far? Okay, here we go. The second deadly sin, the sin of pride. This is a huge one where we live. Uh, We saw last week, because Israel uh, uniquely in the ancient world had a God who loved work, I mean, God was the first one we see working when you open the pages of Scripture. Uh, because of that, Israel also loved work. And everybody was supposed to work. Every boy had a job. He was trade in a trade. Every girl would learn to run a household. And if you read Proverbs 31, that involved all kinds of things. Uh, buying fields, managing servants, making uh, clothes and cloth, procuring food, making meals, raising children, you name it. The point is this. Everyone in Israel was supposed to have a trade, have a job. One scholar notes that there are over 200 occupations that are mentioned in the Bible. And he lists the the biblical occupations that begin just with the letter C to kind of illustrate this. I found this interesting, so I'm going to share it with you. You may not find it interesting, but uh, it's an amazing list. Just the jobs mentioned in the Bible that start with a C. You ready for this list? Camel drivers, captains. Carpet makers, census takers, cheese makers, circumcisers, cooks, counselors, cupbearers, customs clerks, caravan chiefs, cattlemen, charioteers, choir masters, clothiers, coppersmiths, counterfeiters. That's not a recommended job, but that's in there. Uh, custodians. And, and this is just the C list, right? Just the C list. Which job do you think is the most important job mentioned in the Bible? It's so interesting. In Deuteronomy, Moses is talking to Israel about the fact that someday they're very likely to have a king. And Moses says this, the king must take the scriptures seriously. He must live in submission to them just like everybody else. And here's what Moses says. We can actually read it. He says, the king must not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. In other words, no job makes any person any more important than any other person. Not even the job of the king. It's written in Proverbs and quoted again in the New Testament by James and also again by Peter that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now we need to hear that today, friends. We, we really do. That God is unalterably opposed to the human system that grants greater worth or status or dignity to people based on the job that they do. Because we live in a society where that is how our society works. God hates that because it wounds people. You know, you want to know how to give yourself a little test on this to see how deeply this is rooted in your spirit and your soul? Here's an easy thing to do. When you meet somebody, you always ask the question. It's the inevitable question. What is it? What do you do for a living, right? And that's not a bad question at all. But if they say uh, a job, they mention a job that sounds real important, has a really high salary or some high status to it, ask yourself, do you lean into that conversation a little more? Are you a little more interested in the conversation that you're having with this person? Do you think, hey, this is somebody worth getting to know? They could be strategic to me. Or if it sounds like a a low-status job, do you get a little disengaged? Are you a little less interested in pursuing that conversation? You see, friends, God frankly hates that. 
God is never impressed by somebody's job. God is never depressed by somebody's job. doesn't matter what the job is. All of our jobs, you see, matter to God. All of our jobs, period. Now, I want to say a word to uh, a group of people in our society who uh, are, well, they're, they're not really appreciated. And, uh, this is just the category of parents. And in particular, I'm talking to parents who stay home and, and take care of children, which in our culture, uh, oftentimes, most of the time, is, is the mom. But sometimes it's the dad. Uh, these are people who stay home and just work and work and work to raise little ones. Uh, in our status conscious craziness, things like homemaking and things like parenting are not high status jobs. They are probably the hardest jobs. Am I right? I mean, you talk about hard, that's a hard job, but they're not high status jobs. In fact, often this job is devalued, it's forgotten, and it's unappreciated altogether in our culture. And that's tragic and that's wrong. So next time, moms, when you are asked, what do you do, and you hesitate to have, you know, what should I say, say this. I am socializing two homo sapiens in the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition, so they might become agents for the transformation of the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia that God Almighty had in mind from the beginning of creation. And then say, and then say, what do you do? Yeah. You see, parents, you are doing work that is as hard and challenging and noble and glorious and valued by God and as eternally significant as anything anyone is doing on this planet. And so we here at Deer Creek, we thank God you are who you are, and we thank God that you do what you do. That matters immensely to God and to us around here. You are heroes, the job that you do. Now, one other word on this before we leave this particular deadly sin. Again, our culture is so messed up on this whole pride and work thing. There's a, a CEO who for many years had been involved in Alcoholics Anonymous because he himself wrestled with that addiction. He was very public about this. And he would get asked occasionally, what does it feel like going every day? Because he would go to AA every single day. What does it feel like going every day from the, the C-suite, you know, the corner office, rubbing shoulders with really powerful, really important, really wealthy people to going to a dingy church basement, because that's where his meeting took place, every single day at 6 p.m. to hang out with a bunch of drunks? And his answer, I thought, it's... it's incredibly insightful this is how he answered he said that question completely misses the point we are not our jobs hang on to that we are not our jobs at a deeper at a deeper level we're all just a bunch of drunks helping each other go one more day without getting drunk and that is more true of all of us than we can, frankly, imagine. Friends, there is so much wisdom in that statement. You see, we are not our jobs. Not in the church. Not in God's community. I mean, I don't care how high your job sounds or how important your job is or if you even have no job at all. We're just glad that you're here with us for one thing. But the church is a different kind of community. We are just a bunch of sinners helping a bunch of other sinners go one more day, another day, clinging, holding on to God to get us through that day. That's who we are. 
And there should be no pride around here about what I do that makes me better than what you do. Because I am not my job. And you are not your job. Let's not make that uh, mistake. Let's not buy into that sin or that attitude. Let's not grade people by what they do or don't do. Because God doesn't do that. Here's the third deadly sin, the sin of unethical action. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he says, he who has been stealing, I love that. He who has been stealing, he expects that there will be folks in church, in the church community who have been thieves. And, you know, that is certainly true of you all here. Um, he's, not, he's not shocked at all that there are thieves uh, there uh, as the church gathers. But he has some thoughts on this. He says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, because after all, work is a good thing. He says, doing something useful with their own hands. We all have a need to be useful. That's one of the many reasons that we do work. And not just that, we do work so that, he says, they may have something to share with those in need. We were made to share. We're made to give. We are made to contribute. And when we give out of our work to help others or to advance the kingdom of Jesus, understand that is a gift to us from God. That's one of the ways that we participate in the work and the plan and the purposes of God. And that is a gift to us. That's part of our making a difference. That's part of our advancing God's kingdom. So when we don't do this, friends, we are missing out on so much joy, so much purpose, so much satisfaction in life to know that what I do, I do with God. Remember, it's never just me and the pipe. Yeah. Never just, you listen to last week's sermons, never just me and the pipe. Uh, so Paul says, he very clear, he says, stop stealing. He says, stop it. Stop stealing. Start working. Start sharing. It will make all the difference uh, in your life, in the world. And I would just ask all of us to think about our work lives and ask ourselves a simple question. Um, is there any way that I'm stealing? Is there any way when I work that I steal? Am I cheating on my expense account? Am I cheating on my taxes? Am I lying at work where I've been or what I'm doing? Am I taking credit for ideas that aren't mine? Do I take home office, uh, you know, do I, do I take home office supplies and things of that nature? Do I make inappropriate sexual comments to, to somebody else in the office? Do I demean others at work, maybe others who are lower on the org chart? Do I hold grudges against people? Do I gossip uh, about people at work knowing that that's going to damage them somehow? You see, here's the point. We work for who? For Jesus. We work for Jesus. So let's set the bar on things like this where it should be really, really high. You know, Paul at one point writes to a group of Jesus followers, and this is what he says. He says, live so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. That's where the bar is set. Shine like stars in the universe. We are to look differently. We are to act differently. We are to live differently. We are to work differently. There's a guy named Max Dupree. Uh, he was a leader for many years at a company called Herman Miller, which is a furniture company. And uh, he's written a number of books as well. He also started the Center for Leadership at Fuller Theological Seminary in California. One of the decisions he made early on in his career was that he would cap his salary as CEO of this company. 
He just decided that he uh, was not going to ever pay himself more than 20 times the lowest paid employee at the company. Uh, There's no verse in the Bible about that. I mean, he didn't get that out of some piece of scripture. Uh, There's no formula, but he was just struggling, really struggling with how do I express my faith financially and corporately here in this company that I lead? How do I declare the values that I embody because of who Jesus is? How do I declare that and live that out in the marketplace? Some of you will have heard of a guy named Dan Price, a different kind of CEO. (laughs) He's a young CEO of a company called Gravity Payments, which actually is a company that helps large corporations uh, receive uh, uh, credit card payments and things of that nature. <coughs> Started in 2004. Here he's on the Dan is on the picture of cover of uh, on the cover of uh, Inc. magazine. What Dan did is he raised his company's minimum salary to seventy thousand dollars. Now to do that, he took personally a huge pay cut. And uh, this all got a lot of media attention, so much so that he wound up on the cover of magazines like Inc. And um, what didn't get a lot of attention, though, which is kind of germane to the whole point, is that Dan was a, a graduate of Seattle Pacific University, which is a Christian college. And the reason he did what he did was he was trying to live out his faith in Jesus there in this corporation that he was leading, that he had started. And I know there are a lot of big debates about compensation, and there can be agreements, disagreements uh, around this, and I'm not an economist, not by any stretch of the imagination, and, and those debates are all legitimate, whatever. But all I want to say is that any follower of Jesus ought to ask questions like, how does my behavior, how do my choices, how do my words, how does my financial life, how does my treatment of other people reflect the truth about Jesus, the Jesus that I follow and the God that I serve? What does that need to look like? In other words, how do I shine like a star? What does that look like where I work? And this is vitally important for you and for me to figure that out so that the, the way we work and interact with others, we are definitely consciously representing Jesus there. Does that make sense? It's an important part of the work we do. Here's the next deadly sin, number four, the sin of work idolatry. (laughs) You know, if the idols in the Old Testament had names like Baal and Moloch and Asherah, then the idols of our day have names like success and achievement and power. Um, There are all kinds of folks who just get driven and... um, addicted to and enslaved to the need to be successful, uh, and that then actually becomes their God. It becomes what drives them. It becomes what helps them determine how they're going to use their time and so. And so on the altar before that God, they sacrifice their family. They sacrifice their personal health. They sacrifice uh, their own personal faith oftentimes, and they don't admit that to anybody. They don't even really admit it to themselves, but they do it. Ironically, they do it often telling themselves, I'm doing it for my family. You know, I, I'm doing it for them so that they'll have the money they need to get the stuff that they, that they want, yada, yada, yada. And really, they're just worshiping the false god of success and accomplishment. And, and truthfully, this god is fun to worship sometimes. This god is fun to worship sometimes. 
Uh, if you are experiencing success, as the world might define success, people look up to you. They want to hear what you have to say, and you have power, and you have influence, and you feel important, and you get rewarded financially. I mean, what's not to like about that? That's all very, very addicting, in fact. But hear me on this. All of those benefits are yours only as long as you perform and produce. Because the moment that stops, you lose all the bennies. That is a treadmill you can never, not ever get off of. And it comes at a very high price, a deadly price, mentally, physically, and spiritually, when you adopt the priority of worshiping that kind of God. And let me tell you something. A Jesus follower does what he or she does first and foremost for Jesus, for his glory, for his kingdom, not for self-promotion, not for success. Jesus said this. He said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. If you make your life all about you, all about your success, all about self-promotion and so, you're going to lose your life. That's just not big enough. You were meant to, to do something bigger and better than that. He says, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. If you will, we'll find it. <laughs> and I'll tell you, you meant what he said. Giving up an addiction to work feels a lot like dying. So if you were to take anything that we're talking about this morning seriously, uh, it feels like dying. But, you know, uh, come to think of it, Jesus said die. <laughs> that, that's what he said. And I, and I think he meant it. I want to show you something real simple. There's, uh, you've seen things like this maybe before. It's just a little pyramid. You know, if you love Jesus, if you follow Jesus, there have to be some priorities in your life. You don't get to determine the priorities yourself. You have to adopt a set of priorities. And at the very top priority is God. God comes first. You have to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your spirit. Uh, have, we, we are told, God tells us, you will have no other gods before me, and that includes work. That means a priority, a practical priority in your life has to be God, top of the pyramid. And then, of course, there's your, your spouse, your marriage. You know, when you get married, you make certain covenant promises to your spouse. You have to, you have to really embrace those promises. You have to work to keep those promises. You, you need God's help to do that. But that is the second-level priority or should be in your life if you're married. And if you're married and you've got kids, well, there's the third one. If you're a mom, if you're a dad, you cannot ignore the fact that you need to parent. You, you need to invest in these children. And then there's lastly work. And work is a good thing. It's a real important thing. It is a priority. But it is not God, and it is not your spouse, and it is not your children. And I'll tell you a little secret about work. Work wants to be God. Work really wants to get up to the top of the pyramid. And if it's not number four, it's probably number one in your life. Now, again, I know this can be painful and it can be scary, but here's a way to check yourself on this. This is have one of those spouse talks. Just ask your spouse this week, later today, how are my priorities? And don't argue, don't defend, just listen. You know, are we suffering? Is our relationship suffering because of my priorities? Is our family suffering because of my attachment to my work and to success? And just tell them, invite them to be brutally honest with you. That'll help you to discern whether this deadly sin is a trap that you're walking into. Friends, if you are courageous enough to say no to the worship of work, 
in order to say yes to your God and yes to your spouse and yes to your children, you will then save your life. You will find true life. Amen? Okay. The, uh, the fifth deadly sin, the sin of avoiding accountability. Jesus told an awful lot of parables from the field of work, and one of them is about three employees. They're all entrusted with resources. They're given opportunities, and they're given time by the employer. And the hinge moment in the story comes when they're called to be accountable. We read this in Matthew 25. It says, After a long time, the master of these three servants returned and settled accounts with them, accountability. Two of them had been very faithful in their work, and they were rewarded, but one of them had not. But instead of just owning up to it and going, yeah, I did nothing with what you gave me, he was filled with excuses. This is what he said. He said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. You see, here is what belongs to you. In other words, what this servant is saying is the reason I wasn't faithful is because you are a hard guy to work for. That was his excuse. It's, it's really your fault, not mine. I knew what you were like, so I just buried it, and here, I'm giving it back to you. And I've got to tell you, friends, it's easy how, it's just amazing how easy it is to spend hours and days and weeks and months and years not giving God my very best when I'm at work and then blame somebody else for my poor performance. It's not my fault, it's their fault. Classic example of this is in the book of Exodus. Moses goes to meet with God. Moses has a job to do, like we all do. And like a good leader, he, uh, he delegates caring for the people to his brother Aaron. That's now Aaron's job while Moses is gone. Moses goes to meet with God. He comes back, and the people he finds are worshiping an idol, a golden calf of all things. That was not Aaron's job. Aaron was not supposed to do that. So Moses is not happy. It's time to hold Aaron accountable. And so in Exodus 32, Moses says to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? What are you thinking, Aaron? And Aaron's response is classic. He says this, oh, do not be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, in other words, wasn't my idea. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, well, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave uh, gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) Wasn't me, Moses. It's their fault. And here's the deal. Avoiding responsibility becomes a habit that eventually destroys people, especially in the workforce. Not my problem. Somebody else's problem. Not my deal. Not my issue. I don't have to be concerned about that. I don't have to make it better. Not my area of concern. Wasn't me, Moses. There's an old story uh, about a guy, you probably heard this, who becomes the CEO of a company and he talks to the outgoing CEO who says to him, you know, I hope you have no problems as you run this company, but if you do have a crisis, I've, I've prepared three envelopes for you. Have you heard this? And uh, you can just open them up when a problem arises, and I've numbered them for you, and it'll tell you what to do. And so for a while, everything's going fine, but then the first really big problem pops up, and he remembers the envelopes, and he takes one out and opens up envelope number one, and in there, it just says, blame me. And so he does. He blames the old CEO. Everybody buys it. Everybody's like, oh, okay, okay, I guess it is the fault of the old CEO. Things go along for a while, no problem. Suddenly, a big problem arises, and 
He remembers the envelopes. He goes get on and gets envelope number two and opens it up and it says, blame the board. And so he does. He blames the board. It's the board of directors' fault. They're the ones responsible for this. Everybody buys it. Everybody's fine with that. Things go okay for a while. Then a third problem crops up and he gets that third envelope and he opens it up and, and uh, here's what it says. It says, uh, prepare three envelopes. In other words, eventually excuses run out. They run out here on earth. And believe me, all of our excuses are going to run out the day we stand before our maker and give a full account. Aaron says, these people said to me, not my fault, you see. It's so easy to say, I would be a better worker if I had a better boss, if I had a better job, if I worked on another team, if I worked for a better company. If I had a bigger paycheck, you know, the most important thing that you bring home from work is not your paycheck. Never is. The most important thing you bring home from your work is you. It's your spirit. It's your integrity. It's your heart. It's your work ethic. Nobody else gets to be in charge of that stuff except you. And this uh, actually leads to the next uh, The next deadly sin, number six, the sin of a bad attitude. Did you know that having a bad attitude at work is actually a sin? The Apostle Paul says repeatedly uh, to uh, the church at Corinth, he says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for what? The glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. Uh, Another time he was writing to the church at Colossae, and he said this, he said, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, he said, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. And here's the thing. For a Jesus follower, there is never a place for a bad attitude. Even if your work is difficult, even if you're working under people that are just uh, oppressive and hard and, and not easy to get along with. You see, I don't need a different job. I don't need an easier job. I don't even need a better job. I just need to do my job with a better attitude with a greater love for Jesus, a greater awareness for Jesus, with a greater love and grace for people, with a greater appreciation that what I do matters to God, even if it does not matter to anybody else. God is watching. He's who I work for. He will reward me. That's got to be the attitude. God cares about your job when you do it for him. And and God loves excellent work. He loves our best efforts. He loves well-written emails and well-run meetings. He loves well-led teams and well-baked bread. And uh, he loves well-brewed beer. That's true, he does. And he loves well-cleaned sinks and well-driven buses and well-designed apps and well-taught classes. He loves a genuinely friendly reception desk, whatever it is. He loves seeing things done well. And when you do your work as though doing it for him, with that right mindset and that right attitude, understand what you're really doing is you're worshiping him. You are giving him glory. You you have just made your work a place of worship when you work that way. And that's the goal. That's the objective, friends. So here's the last deadly sin. And it's the sin of 24-7-ism. Let me explain. This is a huge problem in our day. We tend to worship work so much, we think that to be busy is to be important. And we all buy this. We all do. Have uh, any of you who work at home, have you ever been, maybe you've just been eating lunch and you're sitting there watching TV and the phone rings. What do you do? Mute. 
Hello? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, oh, yeah, what are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm just working away here. Yeah, mm-hmm, just working away. You know, anybody here ever done that? I never have. Uh, we tend to worship work so much, we think that to be busy is to be important. And to not be busy or at least look busy is to be unimportant. Uh, we tend to think that God will judge us based on our career success or our level of activity. And while it's true that God loves work, that's very true. God also created a vehicle for disconnecting from work. It's something called a Sabbath. God made this. And it's just brilliant. Genesis 2, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Later on he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That word, uh, the Hebrew word for holy there is a word that initially meant to separate to pull it apart from the ordinary. And it's actually a Genesis 1 word. You know, when God separates light from darkness and God separates sky from earth and he separates land from sea. In the ancient world, understand, chaos was always the enemy of human flourishing. So the idea of creation is to end chaos and bring order to it so human beings can flourish and, and give honor and glory to God. And so to make something holy is to redeem it from chaos so it can be useful, so it can be beautiful. So the interesting thing in the whole creation story, the last thing God separates is labor from leisure. So interesting. He creates a space for abiding, a space for rest, a space for recovery so that we can work out of a restful place, out of a Sabbath. You know, we tend to think that we're supposed to work, 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 until we're so exhausted we have to rest. The biblical pattern is exactly the opposite of that, friends. The very first thing that God asks Adam and Eve to do after they're created is to rest. Out of their rest, out of their abiding in God, he invites them to work, to rule over and subdue. In our culture, we have a serious problem with work creep. We always feel like I have one more thing to do. I have one more appointment. I have one more phone call to make. I have one more task that I need to do, and it never, ever ends. People check their business news while in bed before going to bed. Uh, people read work texts uh, first thing in the morning, as soon as they get out of bed, you know, while they're having breakfast. There is just no such thing anymore as rest or abiding. And I'm just checking here, just going to check. Uh, as anyone in your heart of hearts, your, your secret, that secret place, have you ever thought to yourself, Gee, I wish emails had never been invented. Anybody? Oh, yeah. Have you noticed how they can follow you anywhere? Doesn't matter what you're doing. It's like kudzu, electronic kudzu. It just grows and creeps everywhere. And today it's not just emails, for crying out loud. It's tweets and Snapchats and Instagrams and yada, yada, yada. These things just spread everywhere, and they suck up time like a vacuum. Here's what's interesting. People are also increasingly interrupting their work day with this personal stuff. Facebook and Twitter both report that their sites are most active, you want to guess when? During the work day, during the work hours. One writer says this, we live in a cult of connectivity, so we're both always working but never really fully working. I think that's true. Friends, God, that, that, is, that is not God's plan. For God, there are healthy daily rhythms. We see it in the book of Genesis, the very first chapter. At the end of every single day, God would review his work and he would celebrate it. He would say, it is good. And it was done for the day. Um, I think I would argue that we need to create a daily finish line in our lives as well. 
Uh, set a time when you're not going to work anymore. No more emails, no more texts, no more phone calls. Just trust God. You know, we saw last week, we talked about this, the, Jesus' statement. He said, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Imagine that. Tomorrow, whatever that is, is going to worry about itself. You're adding your worry to it. doesn't do a darn thing. Because tomorrow is already worrying about itself. And he says each day has enough trouble of its own. Imagine that, enough trouble. There's enough trouble today, and there's going to be enough trouble tomorrow. I don't need to add any more trouble to it, right? It's, just, it's going to take care of itself. So give it a rest. Don't worry. Tomorrow's troubles will wait. Have a daily finish line where you don't worry and you don't, you don't engage around the work thing. And then, too, I would say have a weekly Sabbath finish line, a time to be with God. And be with family and be with your friends to do what you love, to listen to great music, to eat great food, to play frisbee, golf, hike, take a nap. Just don't work. Practice the rhythm that Jesus practiced. Practice the rhythm that God put into place. He may have done it for a reason. You know, actually disconnect for a day. Don't do work. Don't plan work. Don't look at work. Don't think about work. Don't dream about work. Don't read about work. Don't do any work. You can even turn your phone off. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine that? Turning your phone off? That would kill some of you. To be honest, it might kill me. But, it, but it's in these times, it's in these times of abiding and resting in the Lord that I remember I am not my job. My worth is not my work. My life is not my resume. Jesus said this. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Where do you find rest? Starts by coming to Jesus. He also said this. He said, remain in me, or many versions. Uh, I think the old King James probably translates this, abide. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit. You want to be fruitful? No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, he says. Our work actually depends on our resting in and with Jesus and learning to practice rhythms where we abide in him. You need a Sabbath, friends. You need a real Sabbath. Well, those are the seven deadly sins of work. You know, I'm not going to be preaching for a long time, so I took a few extra minutes this morning. Uh, decided to preach two sermons in this one. But uh, if you're feeling discouraged, if you're feeling uh, like, wow, I wish I had practiced some of these things earlier on. If you're feeling convicted, if you have a pile of regrets around some of these things, then remember this. Remember the most important work in the universe is the work of forgiving sins. And Jesus has done that work for you. It is finished, he said. And so if you're loaded down with guilt or regret or pain around any of the things that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, understand Jesus already died for you on the cross. And that means you get a do-over. Starting right now, starting today, you get a do-over. This is always true in the Christian life. Thank you, Jesus, that it's, that it's true. Amen? Okay. Would you pray with me, please? God, thank you for the gift of work. I pray right now for people who are discouraged because they can't find it, or they feel afraid or ashamed or alone. Help them to know they are not alone. I pray for people who are working in 
jobs where they're just filled with stress and they're preoccupied. God, flood them with peace. And I pray for people who are exhausted right now. Give them Sabbath. Give them rest. And I pray for people who are all charged up right now because they're getting to do something they enjoy, something they love, something that feels great. God, give them more and more inspiration. Just fill them up even more. And God, we confess how sin gets into our work and our work gets us into sin. And we can't get ourselves out of it. But you can. And so, God, we give you our work lives. May Jesus redeem us. May Jesus teach us and empower us and forgive us and enable us to work together with you, Father, and for you. That is our prayer. Help us to do that this week and in the weeks to come. Help us to wake up tomorrow and say again, Thank you, God, that it's Monday. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.